All right, we'll give a, get a chance for everybody to kind of get settled in and grab their coffee and donut. And we'll go ahead and have a word of prayer and jump right in to the lesson this week. Last week, we were kind of all over the place addressing uh, current issues in the community. So we didn't get too far in the actual Genesis account. So hopefully we'll get further today. So let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this beautiful, wonderful day, this nice, mild weather, the blue skies and the fresh air and... Lord, just the changing of the seasons, just to drive through the countryside and see the trees to begin to change and just the, the fiery oranges and the, the deep burgundy reds and the yellows. And uh, it's just a spectacular canvas of your creation. And, and you are a good God and you give good gifts. Heavenly Father, meet with us here this morning. May your Holy Spirit move and work within us and among us and open up our hearts and our minds to the understanding of your word so that we can not only just know your word for intellectual purposes, but we know your word and understand your word so we can tell others and give them the reason for the hope that we have within us. And as we go through Genesis, that we'd be a little bit more educated and a little bit more equipped and informed uh, to, speak of the, uh, to speak to those maybe who have a different worldview than we have in regards to creation. So Lord, we love you and we praise you and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. So we kind of left off regarding what a day was, so I'm not going to rehash that, but what I would like to point out is that, you know, some people say that the earth or that the, the, a day is, you know, a thousand years or whatever, and they try to use that to kind of uh, agree with the Darwinian theory and uh, kind of promote theistic evolution. And because of the Hebrew word day and the context that it's in and the specific evening and morning, that they're literal and not used symbolically or allegorical. And another interesting thing is that science confirms that the earth is slowing down. So in the beginning, it might have not been a 24-hour day. It might have been shorter than 24 hours. But the earth is slowly slowing down, which also lends to the fact, uh, confirming the second law of thermodynamics, that uh, everything is degrading, everything is slowing down, everything is winding down to an end. So at creation, it's like God wound up the clock and everything's kind of winding down. That's why we have black holes and supernovas and stars exploding and asteroids. You know, nothing gets better, it gets worse, it degrades. So uh, it says in, in the scriptures that, the, that creation uh, um, yearns and groans for its redemption to be put back to that perfect Edenic state before the fall of man. So uh, let's go ahead and, and move on. You, uh, hopefully you have the handouts that we handed out last week. This is more for your benefit and for reference when you're studying the scriptures, because a lot of times you're going to run into, especially in the King James Version and other versions, the watches of the night, the hours of the day, or it'll say something like it was the 14th day of the seventh month. And, you know, we've got in our head this Gentile, Greek, Romanesque way of looking at time. But the Bible comes from a Hebraic standpoint. So a day is not midnight to midnight. A day is uh, sundown to sundown. So, for instance, the Sabbath. Uh, Jews begin to celebrate the Sabbath once the sun goes down on Friday night. They light candles and they have bread and wine and they have like a little Sabbath service in their home and they eat a meal and, and worship God together. And then it ends on Saturday night sundown, which is called the Havdalah service. Now, the Havdalah service separates the Sabbath from the rest of the week. And this is where, this is where Paul the Apostle 
preached his long sermon, so long that some guy sitting on a windowsill fell asleep and fell out the window, Eutychicus, right? That was the Havdalah service. Whenever it says the first day of the week or the beginning of the week, it's talking about Sunday. It's talking about uh, the sun going down on Saturday. And it's talking about the new week. So there is a Jewish service on the first day of the week. It's called Havdalah. And it's separating the Sabbath from the rest of the week and getting a week started off in the right way. So the watches of the night, um, you, you have the first watch, which is approximately uh, 6 to 9 p.m. That's the first watch. The second watch of the night is approximately 9 p.m. to 12 a.m., and so the night watches is, is, is uh, like a 12-hour period. You have the third watch of the night, uh, which is 12 a.m. to 3 a.m., and the fourth watch, which is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So that covers the entire time of darkness, the entire nighttime. You'll run into this in the gospel accounts when it talks about Jesus' trial and when it talks about his crucifixion. It'll give these weird, odd times, and you're thinking, I wonder what time that really was. Well, this can be kind of a reference for you that you can refer back to. Now, the hours of the day, which was reckoned by the sundial, they had 11 hours in the day. And you had 6 a.m. to 7 a.m., which is the first hour. And it breaks down from there in hour increments. So we won't go down through those. So if it says it was the third hour or it was the ninth hour, you'll, you'll know approximately what time that was when you're reading Scripture. And it'll help you to understand the context of what you're reading better. Now, the days of the week that we have... Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, come from uh, pagan origins, at least the names do. They come from different pagan deities and gods. So Sunday is the awesome and venerable day of the sun because the sun god was worshipped on Sunday back in Roman times and other times like that. Then you have Monday, which is taken from the moon, moon day. So there was a sun god, there was a moon god, and virtually every pagan pantheon, whether it was Canaanite, whether it was uh, Greek, whether it was Egyptian, so you had the Sunday and the moon day, and then the rest of the days take on a, uh, Germ a Germanic tone or a Scandinavian tone because it, it, it plays off of the Germanic gods, which German and Scandinavia uh, are sort of like Rome and Greece. They have the same gods, the same pantheon, they just call it by a different name, and their, their cultures are extremely uh, compatible and similar. So you have Tuesday, which is Tears Day, which was a Nordic god, and it, it also corresponds to the Greek uh, god of Mars, the god of war. So Tuesday is that. You have Wednesday, and uh, Wednesday, uh, usually, like in, in certain languages, there's no J sound. Like in Hebrew, there's no J. It's a Y. So it's not Jesus, it's Yeshua. It's not Joshua, it's Yehoshua. Uh, so kind of in a similar format, there was really no W sound per se, and so it, it was it was Odin or Woden. So Odin, of course, is the is the uh, god, the pantheon, the head god of the Nordic, Scandinavian, Germanic pantheon. So Woden's Day, Wednesday. You have Thursday, which is named after Thor. You have Friday, which is named after Frigg, which was Odin's wife, if I remember correctly. Then you have Saturday, which was named after Saturn. Uh, but in Hebrew, uh, I taught my daughter the Hebrew days of the week, and uh, I put it to, I think, the tune of Jesus Loves the Little Children. Yom, no, maybe it's not. Hang on, let me just sing it and I'll, we'll find out. Yom Rishon, Yom Shenai, Yom Shlishi, Yom Revi'i, Yom Hamashi, Yom Shishi, Shabbat. 
So those are the Hebrew days uh, of the week. Yom Rishon uh, is Sunday. Yom Shenai is Monday, and etc. And the Sabbath is the 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 uh, is the last day, the seventh day. So originally, before the days of the week actually were assigned names in Hebrew, they were just given a new a numeric. It would be the first day of the week, the second day of the week, third day of the week. And the Hebrew alphabet also doubled as the numeric system. So uh, all the Hebrew letters are assigned a number as well. Uh, so that that's, covers the days of the week. Now, the months of the year, we have what is, when we have leap year, we have an extra day, right? Because if we would just go by the calendar and it was unchanged and unaltered, we would end up having Christmas in the middle of summer, <laughs> right? And the Muslim calendar, they don't have any leap days or leap years or leap months or anything like that. So sometimes their festivals are all wacky and they fall at different times of the year. But to regulate the years and kind of keep things around the same time, uh, in our Greco-Roman calendar that we observe today, uh, the Gregorian calendar, if you will, uh, we have a leap year which adds an extra day, which kind of keeps things in sync. Now in Hebrew, it was actually a leap month. So it totally adds a second month to the year. So you have Nisan, which is also called Aviv, and that's the first month. That is the time when the uh, children of Israel came out of Exodus, or came out of Egypt in the Exodus. So the Lord says, this is the beginning of months for you. This is the beginning of your calendar. And so what we'll be discussing in the sermon today is how in Judaism there's actually four different New Year's. So uh, the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Teruah, is considered Rosh Hashanah, a new year, uh, as well as uh, the first of Nisan, the month of Nisan, which is the same month that the uh, Passover took place. Uh, there's, a, there's a new year for trees and a new year for other, other things, and they serve different purposes. But scripturally, biblically speaking, Nisan is the first month. So whenever you're reading the different months in the Bible, you'll go by Nisan. And uh, so if it says if it's the 14th day of the seventh month, you'll know that it's Tishri. And these, these names for the Hebrew months has also changed throughout the millennia. For instance, uh, their captivity in Babylon had greatly influenced their calendar and the name of the months of their calendar. So the fourth month was originally called Bull, and the name has been changed to Tammuz. And Tammuz was a pagan deity in the Babylonian religion. So you had Nimrod and Semiramis. Uh, they were mother and son. Kind of gross, but that's the story. They came together and had Tammuz. So Tammuz has always been portrayed as a false messiah in uh, Babylonian lore. So uh, the 12th month is the month of Adar. And whenever the, the, there needs to be a leap month, uh, there'll be a second month of Adar to follow. Now, if you're interested in the Hebrew months, uh, I would suggest going to jewishresource.net, and you can get a, a, a calendar, and I, this is the calendar I use. And it's a regular calendar, so it's not confusing. It's set up like a regular calendar, but within the days of the calendar that we go by, the secular calendar, it'll tell you what day it is in the Hebrew month. And it'll tell you when all of the Feast of the Lord is in Leviticus chapter 23. So you'll know when Feast of Trumpets is and when, when Passover is and when uh, Feast of Tabernacle is and things like that. So um, is there any questions regarding the watches or the hours or the days of the week or the months?
So I just thought that would be a good reference for you guys to keep in the back of your Bibles. And whenever you run across something like that, you can pull that out and say, oh, okay, that's what that means. All right, so let's uh, open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And I'm going to be reading from the Tree of Life version for our Sunday school class. It is a Messianic version. So um, it's, uh, it was uh, produced by 70 scholars. Half of them were uh, Messianic Jewish scholars. The other half were Christian scholars. And they come up with this translation that is being able to reach across the aisle, so to speak, and uh, really minister to the Jewish people who are curious about Christendom and about the New Testament because the Old Testament is set up in a way that they, they understand, and the verbiage used in the translation uh, they're very comfortable and familiar with. So I thought I'd read from this to give it a little bit more Hebraic flavor. But let's start with verse 3 and 4. It says, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. He saw that the light was good. So if he says that the light was good... The logical conclusion is that darkness is not good, right? Because it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the surface of the deep. And the Ruach Elohim, Spirit of God, hovered upon the surface of the waters. So uh, then it says in verse 4, God saw that the light was good, so he distinguished the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So there was evening and there was morning one day. Now let's not confuse this with the sun and the moon. Because the sun and the moon doesn't show up until day four. So what is this light? According to the Hebrew, this word light comes from the word or. That's the Hebrew word or. And it means illumination and it means enlightenment. And it does not, it does not mean that it's an object that, admit, that emits light. So it can't be referring to the sun, because the Hebrew word says that this is not the sun, this is light. And what does the scripture say in the New Testament about God? Two things it says about God. It says three things, actually. But it says that he's a spirit, says that he is love, and it says that he is light. So this is talking about illumination and enlightenment. And... If darkness, the word darkness is not like a literal darkness, like a darkness in regards to nighttime, but this darkness in the Hebrew also refers to the opposite of the Hebrew word for light, which means enlightenment and illumination. So this darkness uh, actually means it's marot, or no, I'm sorry, that's light. That's the, that's the word light for verse 14. Sorry about that. Uh, let me see, the word, where's the word dark? darkness? Choshek. Choshek. Uh, is darkness in this passage, and it's the opposite of or, and it means ignorance, and it means misery. So we use light and dark as idioms in our life to represent being knowledgeable about something or being ignorant about something. When you don't know what's going on, you say something like, well, I just couldn't understand what was going on. I felt like I was, in the, I was left in the dark. We even use that in our language to describe ignorance. And with it, you know, they say ignorance is bliss. No, ignorance is misery because you don't know what's going on. So that's what light and darkness here is in verses three and four. It's a spiritual, symbolic light and darkness representing knowledge and ignorance, uh, illumination and misery. So that's what is represented there. Uh, so in 1 John 1.15, it says, God is light. 
He is light, and in him there is no darkness, right? And in Revelation uh, 22, 5, where it's talking about the new heaven and the new earth, it says there's, there's not going to be any need for the sun. There's not going to be any need for the moon. Why? Because it says God himself is going to be our light. We are going to be able to see and be illuminated, you know, literally, physically, and also spiritually and intellectually, because God is going to be our light in the new heaven and in the new earth, according to Revelation 22.5. And I find that very, very fascinating. So in verse 14, where it talks about the sun and moon coming on the scene, it's talking about light. It's a different Hebrew word. It's marot. And it's where we get the word meteor. So if you see a meteor streaking across the sky, it emits light, right? Because it's burning up. And you're seeing that burning process as it's streaking across the sky. So the word light in verse 14 is marot, and it means an object that emits light. So uh, we'll go ahead and read that really quick. Verse 14, it says, Then God said, Let the lights in the expanse of the sky be for separating the day from the night. They will be signs for seasons and for days and years. So, you know, the, the farmer's almanac, the calendars that we have hanging on our walls, it goes by the sun and the moon, by the lunar cycle, by the solar cycle. That's how we measure our days. We use a sun, you know, in the ancient times they used a sundial or sun steps as it's revealed in the scripture elsewhere uh, to tell what hour of the day it is. And certain constellations in the night sky will tell us what month it is or what season it is. Uh, the, the waning and waxing of the moon, uh, we determine the months by the lunar cycle. And uh, in Hebrew, in, in the Hebraic world, in Judaism, we celebrate each new month, each new moon. It's a new month, and we celebrate that with blowing of trumpets and, and having a little feast day. So that's what the, the light is. It's uh, in 14 and 15. It's literally talking about the sun and the moon. Uh, so interestingly enough, uh, I've said before that it, the word good is tov, and the word day is yom. So whenever you're in Israel or you meet a Jewish person and you hear yom tov, it means good day. Yom Tov is also a greeting right before a holiday, a biblical holiday. Now, as opposed to the night, I was teaching you just a little Hebrew here, we say good evening or good night. They say Laila Tov, because the word night in Hebrew is Lailil or Lail, and it's the opposite of Yom, the opposite of day. So we say Yom Tov for good day, and we say Laila Tov for good night. Laila Tov. All right, so. Um, We'll, we'll just go ahead and run down the different days of creation. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that because most of you guys grew up in Sunday school. Hey, Richard. Good. Most of you guys grew up in Sunday school, so you know the whole creation story. You know the, the days of the week of creation. So we're not really going to spend a whole lot of time on that, maybe on a few points. But day one is Genesis 1, 3 through 5, and we already read that. God said, let there be light. There was light. God saw that the light was good, so God distinguished light from darkness. Illumination or knowledge versus ignorance and, and misery. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So there was evening and there was morning one day. So again, it's setting the precedent for the Hebraic reckoning of time where a day starts in the evening, as opposed to midnight from our uh, uh, Greco-Roman understanding. Day two. Uh, it says, Genesis 1, 6 and 8, it says, Then God said, Let there be an expanse 
in the middle of the water. Let it be for separating water from water. Boy, that's confusing. What the heck does that mean? That doesn't make sense. I didn't learn this in science class in elementary school or in high school or in college. What is this all about? Then God said, let there be an expanse in the middle of the water. Let it be for separating water from water. So God made the expanse and it separated the water that was below the expanse from the water that was over the expanse. And so it happened. And God called the expanse sky. So there was evening and then there was morning the second day. So I'll have you refer to this chart. We're going to learn a little bit about Hebraic cosmology and the way that the Hebrew people and the ancient people understood the world at that time as they knew it. Now, in one way, the Bible is not a scientific textbook. When God was communicating with mankind, he communicated with man in such a way that they would understand in such a way that would be compatible to the worldview of how they understood the world. We know that the world is round. We know that the world is a globe. We know that it's a sphere. But there was really no way in the ancient times for the ancient peoples to know that. Now, it later came about through mathematics and calculation that, yeah, the world is round. Strangely enough, we have a revival of the flat earth. I don't know if you've been online and you've seen the Flat Earth Society. I've seen this one meme or this one picture, and it was actually a a picture of their website or their Facebook page. It says, the Flat Earth Society has members all around the globe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, what the Flat Earthers do. Now, the guy who started the Flat Earth Society is not a Christian, not a believer. But yet, there are a lot of Christians and a lot of believers who latched onto this because they think that they find a biblical precedent for a flat earth because of the way the Hebrew reads. Uh, And again, God was just relating uh, the scriptures in a way that the people could understand at that point in time. He He didn't want the people to be sidetracked by saying, well, the earth is round, and they're like, wait a second, and they get off on this bunny trail of the earth is round. How can we understand that? Why did God say that? So we just kind of left that alone, and so he could focus on what he wanted to bring across, you know, such as his greatness or his authority or that he is a God above all gods or, or what have you. So this is the way that the ancients viewed the world. Now, if you imagine one of those snow globes that you buy at the little touristy shops that has like the flat bottom and it's got the globe and you shake it up and the snow falls, that's kind of the way that the ancient people saw the world. Because, you know, if you're standing in the middle of Texas or Oklahoma, you could look out as far as you can see and it's like, yeah, well, makes sense to me. The earth is flat, right? You're on the ocean. You don't see the curvature of the earth on a boat in the ocean. So therefore, you would logically think that the earth is flat. And that's the way that they viewed the world. Now, you know, uh, there's a lot of conspiracy theorists out there who say, well, there's this big conspiracy and they're trying to keep the fact that, that we live on a flat earth. And I'm all for conspiracy theories. I'm a conspiracy theorist myself in a lot of ways. But when I look at a conspiracy theory, my question is, what is the end game? What is their reasoning behind a conspiracy? How does it serve their ends and their purposes? And I honestly don't see a logical purpose to promote a a spherical earth if we indeed live on a flat earth. I don't see how the powers that be or the Illuminati or whoever you want to call them, uh, the black hats, whatever, I don't see what advantage they would get to make us believe we live on a sphere. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't really play into anything. 
Uh, so you have these people that are promoting a flat earth, but if you go into a U-2 fighter plane, which a U-2 fighter plane is one of the, uh, it, it skirts that, that, that vague line between our earth and outer space. It just skirts the edge of it. And there's people that have gone up in these U-2 fighter planes and they can clearly see the curvature of the earth. And what about all the satellite footage? Well, that satellite footage, that's all doctored. They want us to believe that we're on a sphere. Well, I can maybe believe one government will want you to think that. But guess what? The United States and Canada are not the only people who have satellites up there. And it would be nothing for a hacker to hack into a satellite and easily pr prove that the Earth is flat. It'd be no problem. And you can't tell me that you have China and, and, and Russia and the United States and Canada and India and all these world powers who have satellites up there that have video cameras on these satellites and view the Earth that we're all enemies with each other, we're about to go to war with each other, we can't agree on religion or politics, but yet we can agree on keeping the world in the dark about a flat earth. Oh, we can agree on that. So we're all in conspiracy together as a world conglomerate. No, that's ridiculous. We can't get along with each other, and, and you know, we're always fighting with each other. We're not going to come to agreement on something like that. So to me, satellites and U-2 fighter planes just kind of prove the curvature of the earth. To me, it's really ridiculous. And again, the Bible is not a scientific textbook per se. When God was delivering a message, he was focusing on the message he wanted to, to deliver. And if that meant putting that message within a worldview that they would understand, that's what God did. So uh, uh, according to the, um, the uh, Hebraic cosmology of that time, you, you had that little snow globe. And so when God created the earth, and it said here, uh, talking about water separating water, what it is, is that there was water on the earth, then there was an atmosphere or sky in the middle of all that, the air we breathe, right? And above that was another layer of water that encapsulated the earth. This created, scientifically speaking, a hyperbaric chamber. Now, a hyperbaric chamber, you might be familiar with divers who go deep sea diving, and let's say they come up a little too quickly, they get what's called the bends. They're put in a hyperbaric chamber to decompress so that they don't get sick. There have, been, there have been experiments used with a hyperbaric chamber with somebody who had a catastrophic injury of a limb and their limb was able to be to heal faster and to regenerate better uh, being in a hyperbaric environment. They have uh, planted certain plants in a hyperbaric environment and they grew bigger and larger. You had tomatoes like the size of a gourd. Uh, so everything lived longer, everything was bigger, in this hyperbaric atmosphere, in this hyperbaric chamber. So that would explain giants, that would explain people living longer, that would explain uh, a lot of things that we find mysterious in the Bible in regards to this hyperbaric chamber. Now what they believed is that you had the water on the earth and you had the land on the earth and above was the sky that you breathe and then you have this water that encapsulated the earth. Above that water was God's throne. And, and I, don't, I, I forgot to put down the references, but there are references in the scripture that, that talks about the throne room of God, the floor of the throne room being the color of sapphire. Sapphire is blue. You get a collection of water together, it looks blue. So it's believed that God's throne was above these waters. So you'll read in the Psalms and in different places where it talks about God's throne being above the waters. That's what this is talking about here. So what happened during Noah's flood 
Oh, before we go on there, on the bottom of the earth, the earth is supported, according to scripture, by pillars. And under the earth is, is water that's under the earth. And under that water is, is the realm of the dead, Sheol, hell, in other words. So that's the picture of the ancient cosmological view of the earth. So when Noah's flood took place, it says that the waters of the deep were broken up. So not only did the hyperbaric chamber disappear because the water within that hyperbaric chamber came down as rain flooding the earth, you had the water that was under the earth come up through cracks and fissures and just, you know, water and debris just exploded outward. And a lot of these uh, meteors and asteroids that fall back to earth, when they do a chemical analysis, it says it came from the earth. And if the waters of the deep were broken up and just spewed the stuff out into, you know, the atmosphere and out into outer space, it would do its cycle of whatever it was orbiting and it would come back to Earth. So a lot of the asteroids and things we see are not from other planets or whatnot uh, or outside of our solar system even. Uh, a lot of it comes from our Earth. And there's a lot of creation scientists that have a lot of evidence to back that up. So when you're reading the scripture, you can kind of keep that in mind, and hopefully it'll help you to understand that a little bit better. So day two, Genesis 1, 6 through 8, talks about the heavens and the skies being created, and hopefully you get a better, better picture of that. Now, hopefully I didn't go too fast and confuse anybody. Does anybody have any questions before we move on? Okay. Day three. We had the dry land and the grass and the herbs and the fruit appear in Genesis 1, 9 through 13. And it says, Then God said, Let the water below the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. And so it happened. And God called the ground land and the collection of water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let land sprout grass green plants uh, yielding seed, fruit trees making fruit, each according to its species, with seed in it upon the land. And it happened so. The land brought forth grass, green plants yielding seed, each according to its species, and the trees making fruit with seeds in it, each according to its species. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. Now, how could this be if you didn't have the sun? That's a, what a lot of scientists will challenge a creationist on. But remember what we said a couple weeks ago about there being a pre-edemic earth, the possibility that the earth was already here, but it was destroyed and it was in chaos and God recreated it. So it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Stop. The earth was without form and void and darkness was up on the face of the deep and the spirit of God moved over the waters. So the earth in the, was already flooded when God started his recreation process in the Genesis account. So if that's so, he said he created the heavens and the earth, which means if he created the heavens, then the stars and the sun and all that and the moon was already there. Because if you look at the verbiage in Genesis 14 through 19, it doesn't say anything about creating the sun, moon, and the stars. It says that he created past tense, that it was already there. It's just that it had appeared. So how, how can we explain this? Well, if the wor world was in chaos and God was bringing order to this chaos slowly or, or you, know, within, you know, within a day, creating the land and the sea and separating the water from waters, creating a hyperbaric chamber, creating the fruit trees and the grass, et cetera, et cetera. We know that when there is a worldwide cataclysm, let's say a volcano erupts and the ash gets spewed into the atmosphere, it will cloud the sky, not only in that country, but in other countries. 
because it gets caught in the atmosphere and it's dispersed. And so it creates a nuclear winter type scenario where it blocks out the sun and it blocks out the stars in the sky. So it looks like it's nighttime. It looks like it's really dark. The rays of the sun can't really penetrate that well through that cloud cover and through that destruction. So it's also theorized that if, God forbid, a nuclear war happened, uh, that it would cause kind of the same effect around the globe, that it would just totally block out the sun. And we know that when an eclipse happens, the moon blocks out the light of the sun and it confuses the animals and they start, you know, the crickets start chirping like it's nighttime and everything kind of goes to sleep. So it's just, it's that the sun and the moon and stars were already there because in Genesis 1-1, he says he created the heavens and the earth. And then in, in uh, verse 14 through 19, you, we'll read, and it says, Then God said, Let lights in the expanse of the sky be for the day and for the night. So let them be for this purpose, implying that they've already been there. They will be for signs and seasons, days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to shine upon the land. So it happened. And then I think verse 16 is just hearkening back to Genesis 1-1 because he said, God created the heavens and the earth. So he's saying what he already did in Genesis 1.1. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to dominate over the day, the lesser light uh, as well as the stars and the dominion over the night. So it's, it's very likely that the sun and moon were already there because the earth and the water on the earth was already there before the recreation. And it's just that on day four, he allowed that light, whether he dispersed clouds or whether he dispersed debris whatever he did why there was darkness whatever reason he dispersed that and allowed the light and the rays of the sun moon and stars to be seen because a plant if he created plants on day three we know that it can't survive too long without the light of the sun because it needs photosynthesis in order to survive and so we see the sun and moon and stars appear on the fourth day, but it's very likely they were all already there when God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1-1. If there is such a thing as the pre-Adamic earth, as many rabbis and even Christian scholars believe. So again, just to reiterate, I don't believe in theistic evolution. I don't believe that it took billions and billions of years to create what we see. I do believe in a literal 24-hour, six-day creation. But I believe in the pre-Adamic earth, me personally. You don't have to believe it because it doesn't have any effect on our doctrine or on our salvation. So it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. Uh, but, the, the, but the likelihood of it is there, and it's revealed in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel and prophetic scriptures that kind of hint about this very thing. Uh, so again, it, it, it doesn't have any pain. That would, though, indicate that even though that our creation, the recreated earth, everything that we see here today is only six to 10,000 years old at tops, because the Hebraic calendar supposedly goes from the day of creation onward. Right now, it's 5779. We're about ready to go into 57, uh, 5780 as far as the Hebraic year goes. So it's close to 6,000 years, right? And of course, we, we, we need to kind of give or take a few because of the captivities and you know the loss of uh, the ability to calculate the calendar during certain times of history. Uh, but this would lend to the fact that if indeed scientists really is indicating an old earth, that's no big deal to me, because if there was a pre-Adamic earth, then the earth was here already anyway. So we do have an old earth, but creation is only six to 10,000 years old tops. So I am a literal six-day creationist. I don't believe in the long day theory and all this garbage theistic evolution that's out there, because I, I try to take the word of God as the word of God from the literal Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic that it comes from and deriving my interpretation from that. So we have the uh, sun, moon, and stars being revealed. 
uh, on day four, and day five takes us to fish and fowl. And so fish and fowl is in Genesis 1, 20 through 23. And it says, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let flying creatures fly above the land across the expanse of the sky. Then God created large sea creatures and every living creature that crawls with which the water swarms according to their species, as well as every winged flying creature according to their species. And God saw that it was good. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters in the sea and let the flying creatures multiply on the land. So there was evening, there was morning, the fifth day. Wow. So uh, now just think of, think of this too. A lot of times when you hear clean and unclean, we think good and bad when it regards to animals. But God didn't create any bad animals. He called his animal creation good. He saw that it was good, even though he made clean and unclean animals. Now, the difference between clean and unclean animals is what, what we're allowed to eat, what we're permitted to eat, what's best for us to eat, and what we're permitted to sacrifice unto the Lord on the altar. Because they're clean animals, which are designated for the purpose of food consumption and for the purpose of sacrifice. Uh, then you have the unclean animals. Doesn't mean they're bad. Doesn't mean they're evil. It just means that they're unclean because God made them for a specific purpose. It's kind of like society. Where would we be without garbage men? You know, New York goes on strike and, the, and, 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 and you know, the garbage men go on strike in New York and the trash piles up and it just breeds sickness and disease and it stinks and nobody wants to visit the Big Apple anymore. Nobody loves New York anymore. And then they're like, oh, okay, yeah, there's not a garbage ferry that comes and makes this disappear. There's actually people that work here that take this stuff away. Well, in the same way, God created certain animals to be his garbage men. And they are called omnivores, which means they'll eat anything, right? You've got, you've got the bottom feeders, the crustaceans, the lobster, the crab, the, the shrimp. They all clean up the rest of the animal poo that drifts to the bottom in the ocean. So it cleans up the garbage. You also have birds of prey, vultures and eagles and uh, all these other things, buzzards. They clean up the roadkill. They are, gar they are God's garbage collectors. They keep the earth clean. They keep it healthy for us. So they serve a purpose. Doesn't mean they're unclean because they're evil or unclean because they're bad. It just means that they're unclean because they do an unclean job and they're not meant for our consumption. They're not meant for us to eat because you are what you eat. If you eat something that's been eaten garbage and trash, you're going to absorb whatever toxins and crap that they're eating and it's not healthy for you. And so God knew this. Uh, and so that's why he, he made these the certain dietary laws. So moving on, finally in day six, Genesis 1, 24 through 31, you have a beast and man, mankind, that was created. So in verse 24, it says, Then God said, Let the land bring forth living creatures according to the species, livestock, crawling creatures, and wild animals according to their species. And it happened so. And God made the wild animals according to their species, the livestock according to their species, and everything that crawls on the ground, each according to its species. And God saw that it was good. Okay, moving on to verse 20. Well, We'll just stop right there and I'll make a brief statement. Before the fall, everything, and everything God created was vegetarian. We're vegans. 
God said, I created all the herbs and all the tree and plant life for you to eat. Just don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only rule. People say, well, what about, what about lions? What about all these carnivores that we have today? Well, they have canine teeth for ripping flesh. And you know what, though? Panda bears have canine teeth, but they don't eat meat. What do they use their canine teeth for? Stripping bamboo. They use it for eating plants. So before the fall, uh, everything was vegetarian because there was no death as we know it, right? So animals weren't preying on other animals. And it says in prophecy that one day things are going to be taken back to that Edenic state where the lion will lay down with the lamb. Lion and lambs are mortal enemies. The lions eat the lambs, but not in the new heaven and the new earth. And it says that even a, even a child will be able to put his hand in a cobra hole and not be bitten. You know, so and, 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 and before, you know, it says that God has put enmity between the man and the serpent, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So, you know, we're kind of mortal enemies with the serpent. We, you know, people, most people recoil from a snake. But in the new heaven and new earth, when we're taken back to that pure Edenic state, uh, everything is going to be in harmony and everything is going to be in order. All right, so verse uh, 26, then God said, let us, ooh, there's that let us statement. What does let us mean? It means two things. It means it's talking about the Godhead. And when I say Godhead, I mean God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, because in uh, John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Same was in the beginning with God. That's talking about Jesus Christ, Messiah Yeshua, being right there at creation. He's the, he's the one who actually created everything, spoke everything into being. So you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is the let us statement. But this is also further articulating regarding the divine counsel. You'll find the divine counsel in Psalm 82. And if you want to know a little bit more about it, I suggest you uh, Google uh, Dr. Michael Heiser. Uh, he has a book called The Unseen Realm. Uh, he has a podcast called The Naked Bible Podcast. And uh, he talks about this, the, uh, this divine counsel. So in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where it says sons of God, it's either talking about the angels or talking about this divine counsel. Why would God need a divine counsel? Well, he doesn't. But he wants his creation to be involved in what he does. He doesn't need us, but yet he involves us in the plan of redemption. He tells us to go. If he wanted to save the whole world, snap of a finger, he could have. But he wants us to be involved in that process of bringing people to him. So in the same way, he has this divine counsel. And in, uh, in uh, uh, Psalm 82, it talks about this divine counsel, which is, which is made up of angels, which is made up of these heavenly creatures, like we see in the prophecies of Ezekiel and Isaiah, you know, these, these angelic creatures with six wings and, you know, multiple faces and, you know, things that are bizarre that we can't really understand. And Job talks about this divine counsel. When God called his divine counsel, who was there? Satan. Because he was a son of God, too. He was one of his created angelic beings. He was actually a throne guardian before he got kicked out of heaven. So when it come for roll call for the heavenly divine council, God said, where have you been? Oh, here and there, roaming about the earth, right? So even Satan has to give an account. The fallen Satan has to give an account to God for what he does. So when it says, let us make man in our own image, the angels bear the image of God in the sense that they have intelligence that they have a moral fiber and a moral character. And that's why we're called 
being created in the image of God because we share that same moral and spiritual fiber that the angels do. But we're just created a little lower than the angels according to what the scriptures say. Uh, so, and, it, and I'd liken it to like uh, parents who has kids. The parents get together at night and they're saying, hey, where are we going to go on summer vacation? Well, why don't we take, you know, the kids to Disney World? Okay, yeah. So they get the kids. Guys, we're having a family meeting. Where do you want to go on summer vacation? Let's hear your input. I want to go to Wally World. I want to go here. I want to go to Disney World. Oh, yay! So you involve the kids in that process of deciding where you're going to go on summer break, but you've already pretty much decided, but you want the kids to be involved. You want their input. And God uses the input of the divine counsel in certain situations. Remember the time he said, who will, who will be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets to divert what the king is doing in the Old Testament? One of them said, I'll do it. I'll do it, Lord. So he has this divine counsel where he is uh, um, you know, uh, conferring with. So one of, the, one of the angels decided to mislead, agreed to mislead one of these uh, kings, these evil kings, so that God's purposes could be fulfilled. So that, it's, it's kind of a double thing here. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Let him rule over the fish of the sea, over the flying creatures of the sky, over the livestock, over the whole earth, and over every crawling creature that crawls on the land. So God gave us stewardship and management of this earth and everything on it. So we're supposed to be good stewards and, and responsible. And I'm all for, you know, keeping the earth clean. And I'm all for being responsible about what we do. But I am not an eco-terrorist. And I'm not one of these eco-alarmists. You know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't believe in the whole global warming scenario. There is another agenda behind it. Uh, we have not been on the earth long enough, recording history long enough, to really know the cycles of the earth. If we've had several ice ages, then there's naturally a process of warming and cooling. And people say, oh, well, climate change. Notice it was called global warming. And when they couldn't prove that the world is actually warming, they called it climate change, right? And actually, they're saying, oh, oh, the, the Arctic's melting. Well, actually, this year or last year, the highest recorded sea ice so it just doesn't fit the narrative. It's just an alarmist because the government wants to control what we say, what we do uh, with, with the resources. So uh, finishing up here with uh, day six, it says, God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God is love. God is light. God is a spirit. But yet he creates male and female in his own image. What does that tell you? That God has masculine qualities, God has feminine qualities. He split those qualities up and designated two different sexes. And it says the two shall become one flesh, right? He told them to be fruitful, multiply, and everything. And then later on, it says that the two shall become one flesh, right? So, you know, that we, we refer to our spouses as our better half. And so God has masculine qualities and feminine qualities. If he didn't, he couldn't create male and female. So God, within and of himself, has to have masculine and feminine qualities in order to create a man and a woman with masculine and feminine qualities. And the two shall come together and become one flesh. In Hebraic thought, we look at God as God the Father, the masculine side of God. And then there's God the Holy Spirit, which in, even in the Hebrew is in, uh, is in the um, uh, feminine grammar. And what is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the comforter. So it's a motherly type figure. It comforts, it nurtures, it, it, it leads, it guides, it educates. 
whereas God the Father is more the disciplinarian. So we kind of see the male and female aspects of God in the Godhead, and that is transferred to us because we are made in his image. Okay, so we're just going to go ahead and close with a word of prayer, and we'll take it up next week. Start with Genesis 2. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time that you've allowed us to come together and dive into your word and get deeper past the whole Sunday school, elementary school level of it and get deeper into your word and what the original language means, how the ancients see it, how that applies to us today, and how that, how that affects our interpretation and uh, living out of the scriptures. We love you, Lord, and we praise you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.